And again, that's Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Um, my uh, the sermon title, I actually titled this one, is Very Early in the Morning. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, our old church administrator, Tim Clouck, pulled up outside my house. I threw my fishing pole and waders in the back of his Subaru, and we headed north. We sipped our coffee as we drove over the Iron Workers Bridge. Tim was showing me his fishing spot. Fishing was and is the only reason I will joyously get up before the sun. We drove to Capilano Canyon, and then we got our headlamps and waders on before setting out to the river. Tim led the way. It was as far before dawn as was legally permitted for us to arrive at the river, so it was dark. We were in a canyon walking along cliffs above a very full and swift river. It was raining and I had never been to this place before. I had many good reasons to follow Tim's lead closely. Tim scrambled down a small cliff and found a cleft in the canyon wall where he began to get his fishing set up ready for the river. I watched carefully. Fishing in the dark is not something I had done before. Tim had this, these stash of uh, little tiny glow sticks, very, very tiny that he was pulling out. He made a little hole in the top of his foam float, which is what salmon fishermen call their bobbers. And then he would insert the glow stick into the hole so that just the top of the glow stick stuck out. Uh, when he cast his line out, there was a tiny green dot moving over the surface of the river, giving just the smallest glint of green on the reflection uh, of the, over the black water. I set my float up in the exact way. I saw Tim do it, and then we were fishing, staring out into the dark at our glowing green dots. It should surprise no one who knows Tim 
that he caught three or four salmon that day, and I did not catch any. But I learned to net the salmon expertly in the dark after watching Tim do one. Um, on subsequent trips, I caught a couple salmon too. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, I learned to fish watching Tim, who was, as it turns out, a master. Fishing and football are the two reasons I absolutely love fall. This fall, our sermon series is called That Person Has Been With Jesus, and it's a series about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Disciple and discipleship are words that are often just Christian jargon, but the theme of discipleship is not one reserved for, Christians, uh, for Christian scriptures. Discipleship is a type of learning, and it's a theme that we often see pop up in culture, the culture we are immersed in. Now, in my teacher training, I learned the importance of very good visuals, because not every student or disciple learns well just by listening. So today, I'm structuring this sermon in part around four images for us to contemplate as we consider discipleship and prayer. Let's see if this works. Ah, there we go, perfect. This first image is from one of the most impactful films on my generation. It was such a big deal that the central characters of that movie even toured the United States as an animatronic band, and they filled arenas with children like myself. Dane, can you tell us a little bit about what we're looking at right here? Yes. That's perfect. That's perfect. This is a pretty dark image. I think it was filmed darkly to hide the horrible animatronics. Uh, but it's from the 1990 classic film, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Splinter is a rat uh, who gets exposed to an ooze that mutates him, along with four turtles, which in turn transforms them into the world's most fearsome fighting team, they become heroes in a half shell. And in this picture, we see Splinter before he is mutated. The rat is watching his master, Yoshi, practice ninjutsu. As Splinter watches Yoshi, he practices. He follows his master's movements carefully. Splinter is mimicking kicks and punches. Splinter is learning. Splinter is actively engaged in discipleship. Eventually, Splinter goes on to teach uh, some, his turtle disciples in the same thing that he learned. Disciples are learners. They are apprentices uh, to their teachers. And in Star Wars speak, they are Padawans. All right. Let's, uh, we don't need that up for the whole time. All right. One of the ways disciples learn from their teachers is to mimic them, to watch carefully and try and repeat what their master, what their teacher is doing. I learned to safely navigate Capilano Canyon and occasionally hook a salmon by watching my dark fishing master, Tim Clauck. Master Splinter learned how to be a ninja by watching his, uh, and following his master Yoshi's movements. And we learn how to live into God's kingdom by watching and following Jesus. In our text today, we read that Jesus got up very early in the morning while it was still dark to find a quiet place to pray. For this sermon today, I want to briefly reflect on the story and context of that early morning prayer before going on to wonder about why Jesus models solitude and prayer as a practice and then how we can follow that example in our own context. 
Weave through this reflection time will be four images uh, of contemplation, like the one we just considered. So we're down to three more images. So that's a way of telling if I'm near the end. Uh, the story in Mark's gospel of Jesus getting up very early in the morning is one I think most of us can relate to a little too well. Jesus had had a very, very much too busy day of hard work. The first paragraph preceding our text, Mark tells us about Jesus' morning at the synagogue. It was Sabbath, and Jesus went to the synagogue because that was his custom. Jesus was teaching, and all the people were like, whoa, this guy is teaching with authority. But there was one guy who had an evil spirit, and the evil spirit was not a fan of Jesus. The evil spirit was making a big scene like a heckler at a com comedy show and making Jesus' preaching job a lot harder. Jesus told the evil spirit to be quiet and get out, and the evil spirit did. Then the people even were even more amazed and started telling everybody in the area about Jesus. And so Jesus was very quickly trending. And that was just the morning. After the big morning, Jesus went to rest and unwind at his friend's place. But even there, there was work to do. When Jesus gets to the house, his friend's mother-in-law is super sick, so Jesus heals her. And then by evening, everyone was showing up at the house. All the sick and demon-possessed people. The whole town was at the door, and Jesus healed the sick people and told the demons to get out. And more people, more work. And then Jesus went to sleep. Jesus had a, had a very, very much too busy day of hard work. It was busy with wonderful and good things. It was good work. The kingdom of God breaking into this little town, bringing liberation and renewed relationship with the creator. Jesus was doing good things. Jesus was healing the sick and transforming people's lives. It was awesome stuff. But it was a big and busy day filled with work and people. The next day, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went to off to find a place to be by himself and pray. Jesus didn't leave a note, and his friends got a little bit worried and went searching for him. When they found him, uh, he told them that it was time to go out to the other villages to preach, to get back to the good work that he was doing. One of the things that we as a community have been grappling with over the last few years is busyness. We live in a busy city, we lead busy lives, and we go to a very busy church. Busy with wonderful and good things, but it's work that we need to hold properly. Once in the before times, I got to preach on work, and the image that spoke to me uh, uh, was one from my childhood, and it was an image of a tree frog. I was a woodsy kid running around damp, mossy foothills of the Cascade Mountains where under cedar trees and vine maples. My companions in those foothills were tree frogs, more properly known as Pacific Chorus Frogs. They're gorgeous creatures, bright green with bandit masks. I loved them. When I was growing up, they were everywhere, and especially concentrated in my Uncle Rich's backyard. And those frogs were imminently catchable and little Jake caught a lot of them. And unfortunately, little Jake would hold on tight and hurt the beautiful things that he loved. I learned that Pacific chorus frogs were beautiful things that were not to be grasped. I had to hold them gently to love them well and let them go when it was time to let them go. 
Holding tree frogs means holding them openly, not trying to have complete control over them. Holding tree frogs means being calm and not letting all your passion for their beauty lead to any squeezing. I learned that squeezing is bad. The proper posture for holding a tree frog was uh, left room for openness, love, and wonder. I believe that Jesus in this story is showing us one way we can hold on to the goodness of work. He is teaching us good work posture. No matter how awesome our work is, work is work. It takes something from us. To hold it properly, we need to have time to slow down. Jesus in this story slows down the pace by seeking out solitude and prayer. James K.A. Smith has a wonderful phrase in his new book, How to Inhabit Time, which if you're interested in reading, I highly recommend and I would love to have a conversation with you about it. But Smith says in his preface that we need to hit the pause button on the frenetic absorption in the everyday and resist the tyranny of the urgent. The tyranny of the urgent is a pretty awesome phrase. I also like the word frenetic. Frenetic. It's a good word. It sounds nice. Our lives, the day-to-day -day reality of work and life, can get a little bit bossy and crowded. It's hard not to be caught up in the urgency and ca carried away by the frenetic pace. It's tough to hit the pause button. One way we can hit the pause button is by mimicking our master, the way that Splinter mimicked Yoshi, and follow Jesus into solitude and prayer. So now that we've had a somewhat brief reflection on the story, I want to enter into some wondering questions. The first wonder question I've already done a little bit of wondering on, and it's, I wonder why Jesus sought solitude and prayer. Why did Jesus choose to hit the pause button? Why did he want time by himself? Mark doesn't tell us directly why Jesus chose that moment to pray by himself. Mark's gospel is scenic, subtle, and succinct. There aren't too many extra details. This story is a good example of that. Jesus has had a busy day filled with good work, and there was some opposition to that work. The next day, Jesus made sure to have some time to himself to pray. Mark leaves us plenty of room to wonder. In my wondering, I was drawn to the idea that there seems to be an important connection between that work and the solitude and prayer. The spiritual devotional practice is related to Jesus's liberating work of proclaiming and ushering in the kingdom of God. Jesus's prayer and Jesus's work are connected. Prayer is a way of connecting with God. Here, Jesus is connecting with God the Father, rooting himself in that love. John reminds us that God so loved the world that he sent his son. Mis Jesus's mission is a direct result of God's love. God's love is the catalyst for the work. The love and mission are intimately connected, and that connection happens in time and space because Jesus was an embodied human. That connection is embodied in, prayer, part, uh, in part in moments of prayer. We are, all of us are involved in good and meaningful work, work that keeps us very busy, as parents, teachers, caregivers, students, neighbors, activists, landscapers, and administrators, there's lots and lots of very good work happening. Martin Luther King once said that all labor that uplifts humanity has dignity and importance and should be undertaken with painstaking excellence. 
Dr. Keene said those words while advocating on behalf of sanitation workers, garbage men. We all have good and important work that shouldn't be slighted or neglected. But to be able to discern what good work to do, how to do it, and, and how to be sustained in it, we need to regularly follow our master's example and seek out time and space by ourselves to pray and root our, our lives in the love of God. I loved your uh, yawn, uh, Farzan. <laughs> Nailing it. <laughs> any good work that we do, uh, any offering that doesn't cost us nothing, needs to be rooted and covered in God's love. To be immersed in that love takes time and space because we too are embodied human beings. That means practicing connecting to God's love the ways that Jesus models. In our story today, that means finding alone time in an alone place. And this is my third image. And I'm pretty sure it will be the first time that anyone has used an image from a video game. Uh, so uh, can one of my fellow Zelda enthusiasts tell us a me a little bit about what I'm looking at? Luke, what, what do you think this is? What am I looking at? Yes, it is Link's costume from uh, Breath of the Wild. More specifically, it's a very bad picture of a warm doublet, which is one of Link's costumes. It's essentially a sweater that Zelda wears. If you're playing the game how its creators designed you to play it, you get this doublet very early in your character Link's quest. Link gets it from the woodsman on the plateau where, you, uh, where Link starts his adventure. And this is very, very early in the game, before Link has had the chance to get strong and collect other items of clothing. He mostly is just um, like semi, like he just has like underwear on when, you, when he wakes up. So he needs this sweater. And Link needs it because before you can move on to that game, there, uh, you have to complete some tasks out in the cold. There are these mountains with lots of snow, and if Link doesn't bundle up, he dies very quickly. Now, when I played the game the first time, I never met the woodsman, because I just didn't explore that area. And so, uh, I did not get this warm sweater, and consequently, when I tried to do the tasks up in the mountains, I died. I died over and over again. I would build fires constantly. I would eat hot peppers to warm up. And still, I died over and over again because to do Link's good work on the plateau, he needed to be covered in a warm doublet to sustain himself. In order to sustain our good work as a community and individuals, uh, we need to be covered and immersed in God's love. If Jesus, our teacher, our God, took time and space to connect to the love of the God of the Father through prayer, we should follow Christ's example and take time and space in our lives to pray, rooting ourselves in God's love. Some of the good work uh, we are doing as a church um, involves going down the, the road of truth and reconciliation. And I wanted to just uh, point out this awesome, awesome flyer thing that's at the back. And it's a proposal for reparations that we're going to be talking about in October. Um, and it's a way of working towards um, reconciliation with our indigenous neighbors. It's pretty neat. And I think Annika did the, the drawings, and they're beautiful. Good work. So, so far, we've, had, we've covered Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Zelda. 
I feel like we're really stretching as a community. <laughs> These are images and analogies that I would have shied away from using a couple years ago, but now I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> so the second wonder question is a how question. I wonder how we can follow Jesus' example in the context of our own lives. Now this question leads us into an area that I feel a bit of tension uh, about. There are lots of books, many, many, many words written about how to be more spiritually connected. Books on centering prayer, meditation, spiritual direction, lots of material is out there. I don't want to go too deep into methods because I think there's a danger in that. We can get lost in reading and thinking about the right way or better way to be a spiritually deep and actualized person um, and so that we don't actually do the thing of praying. We can be, be so busy thinking and wondering about prayer that we forget to talk to God about our lives and world. I see this regularly uh, in my little world of fishing. There are lots of fisher people who fill up closets with fishing gear. They go to fishing stores to talk about fishing. They go to fishing blogs to read about fishing, and they watch YouTube videos to watch people fish. But many of them don't spend much time on the river. There's no substitute uh, in fishing for time on the water. Untying your own tangled line, getting snagged on the bottom, trying new and outrageous lures that you randomly find in the bottom of your tackle box, this is how you learn to fish and become a better fisher, by doing the fishing and figuring out what, it, what works in your particular context. Each fishing spot, each bend of the river or cove in a lake, has its own locality that needs to be learned. You learn to fish by fishing. When we try and follow Jesus' example of prayer in our own lives, there is no substitute for praying. There is no secret sauce or method that will suddenly release a torrent of the Holy Spirit into our souls. So be wary trusting any method more than the actual practicing. That being said, I do have two uh, methods that I would like to suggest before giving some space to reflect on the practice of Jesus' example. The first method is praying the Psalms. As I was ruminating on this story that includes Jesus preaching, I remembered a class I took on the Psalms. The professor talked about how much of Jesus teaches, how much of Jesus' teaching and language echoed the Psalms. In Jesus' preaching, Jesus drew from the Psalms an awful lot. Jesus clearly reflected on Psalms often. I wonder if Jesus found himself a lonely spot to pray and chose to pray a few psalms. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation, said that the psalms are training manual for prayer. They teach us to pray, giving us words to speak and ruminate with as we seek to root ourselves in the love of our creator. The psalms give a wide expression of what it means to be human being, seeking to live the life with, uh, to live life with God at our center. I actually think the, the psalm that um, Octavio read uh, before um, I got up was a beautiful uh, illustration of someone learning to pray through praying the psalms in their own context. It was very moving. When we pray psalms, we pray the same words that Jesus ruminated on, and I think that's very neat. The second method I'm going to suggest as an option for following Jesus' example is praying through your consolations and desolations. I wonder if part of what Jesus was doing very early in the morning was thinking through the busyness of the previous day, making 
marking the places in the day where he experienced the love and presence of God, the Father most intimately, and what places and times in the, that day he might have seen an absence of God's love. Consolations and desolations are a way that we trace God's presence in our everyday lives. Consolations are places and times where we have felt encouragement, peace, or love, or joy. If you're thinking through your day and there's an experience that smacks of a fruit of the Spirit, that's a consolation. Desolations are places where we feel discouraged, despair, or isolation. In youth speak, we call these sparkles and, and shadows. When we practice consolations and desolations while praying, what we are doing is asking God, where are you moving in my life? What are you doing in the world around me? Where might you be leading me? Where is your love present in my life and my neighborhood? If you're looking for guidance with these, a spiritual director can be soups helpful. Also, uh, reading St. Ignatius or someone who's read a lot of St. Ignatius, good places to start. But again, there is no substitute for doing the actual thing. Praying doesn't need years and years of training before we can do it effectively. Prayer is a simple thing. Talking to God, contemplating and wondering about what God is doing in our lives and world. We ought not be intimidated by, do, uh, to do, uh, by doing it. We were built to, to pray. I am a huge, huge fan of our old pastor, Monica. I'm not sure how many people remember her. Uh, she is someone I really look to, up to as a good prayer. She loves tea and has lots and lots of candles and has this really calm and soft voice that is just the most prayery thing ever. I am a big fan. If Monica had a jersey, I would wear it. For a while, I used to think that to deepen my spiritual life, to be a better prayer, I had to be more like Monica. I had to become a tea and candle person. Now I don't think that. I think that Jake is not Monica. And that for me, there are different ways to pray. The times that I connect with God, chatting through the stuff of my life and my world, are not always tea and candle times. I pray on runs, I pray fishing, I pray when I write, I pray a bit rantily when I go on walks. We all pray different, and that is also a very neat thing. So this is my final image, and it's a very deep icon that I created. <laughs> Just let you pause and take it in. My final image is of my breakfast. It's cornflakes. I think our prayer lives should include a lot of cornflakes. Cornflakes are not special. They are boring and uncomplicated meals. I think that sometimes when we imagine ourselves connecting to God, we imagine something very, very special, something epic, a week at Rivendell, a backpacking trip up the west coast of the Vancouver Island. We imagine ourselves in special places at special times. We imagine feasts. I love feasts. So whenever I visit my family in Washington, I always stop at my favorite uh, Mexican place in Burlington where I feast. I eat tacos and tortas, mulitas uh, and quesadillas. I drink horchata and Mexican Coke, and I leave uncomfortably full. But I'm not sustained by these meals at my favorite Mexican place. My daily work uh, uh, is not sustained by feasts. 
I'm sustained by bowls of cornflakes. I'm sustained by normal and unexciting regular practices. Growing as a prayer means identifying the normal. We can take that down. Growing as a prayer means identifying the normal and regular places and times in our lives where we find ourselves talking to God and immersing ourselves in his love. Then we can clear out more time and space around those to make room for more. We find the place where we are already connecting with God and go to that place more. For many of us, and for Jesus, this means that the very early morning time is an important time to reserve. So, I'm going to end with two uh, questions that you can talk about with your neighbor. Um, you can dive in, and it'll be uh, a way of preparing for communion. And they're pretty simple questions. Where and when do you find yourself talking to God? We're looking for cornflakes-type mo moments in your day where you just find yourself connecting with God. And are there ways that you could expand or deepen that time with God? So chat amongst yourselves about that.